HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Daniel Bender. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our winter 2021 issue, 21.4, is available now. Normally, we are joined on these podcasts by authors, but we have a special guest today. We're joined by Chef Malcolm James Mitchell. Chef Mitchell joins us today from Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. There are many ways of introducing Chef Mitchell. Perhaps we might introduce him as a restaurateur, a personal chef, an adjunct professor at Prince George's Community College, an advocate, an activist, and a writer. Chef Mitchell, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Um, and that was a beautiful introduction. I need to take you on the road with me. <laughs> I'd love to come with you on the road with you. Normally, we just go right into the, the conversation. Today, though, let me ask you to finish my introduction. How would you describe yourself? Yeah, all those things, um, plus passionate about food, passionate about the food culture in America, passionate about hospitality. Um, I'm definitely an advocate for equity and equality in the hospitality industry. Um, so I can keep going, but I'll stop there. <laughs> well, we're going to talk at length about the beautiful letter entitled First Person Singular, A Letter to My Fellow Black Chefs that you published last summer in Progressive Magazine. And listeners can find a link to that letter in our program notes. Can you briefly introduce the letter that you wrote? Just in a word or two, because we'll get a chance to dive into it. You know, the inspiration was from my great uncle, James Baldwin, who wrote a letter to my nephew, and that was written to my father. So I kind of used in that tenor um, to write a letter. And that letter for, from James Baldwin to my, to my father was about having to navigate his way through a very racist America. And so in that same tenor, I wrote an article to my fellow Black chefs um, to have them be able to navigate their way um, 
in an industry, um, in the hospitality industry. So that was kind of like, in a nutshell, uh, the purpose and the place that I wrote that letter. Yeah, and this is where this is getting really special for me because I can't even begin to tell you the number of times in my classes in American history that I've talked about that letter and assigned that letter. And indeed, the roots of our conversation really begin in well, 1962. Maybe we'll get to 1862, 1762. But in 1962, James Baldwin published that letter also in the Progressive, the letter for the, to my nephew. And can you tell us more about that letter? How did the letter become part of your upbringing? You know, the letter became part of my upbringing only because of through my father and the way he looked at America and him living in Harlem, New York at that time when, when the letter was written. But I'll be honest with you, Dan, I that letter, my father never talked about that letter. Um, I found out about that letter from my daughter who brung this letter to me and, and never knew that it was published or any of those things. But I lived that life through my father's eyes, right? I lived that life through his upbringing with me and teachings. And so, you know, that letter came to me in a place where I just used that letter to be able to, 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 to help other black chefs navigate their way through the hospitality industry. Um, but it was something that I lived. It, it was nothing that I needed to be published. It was published in the progressive magazine for me to go and read when, once I read it, then it even just, it, it, it closed all the gaps and the understandings of how my father was and gave me another indication of, you know, how uh, James Baldwin wanted my father to progress in America. So that's, that's how I used it. That's, it's remarkable. I'd love to hear more about the moment when you first let it, uh, first read the letter, but but also the question of did did reading the letter for the first time did it encourage you to sort of put down the chef's knife and pick up the proverbial pen? You, it's 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 Dan. It's crazy because um, I never thought of myself as a writer. Um, I never. Th- I, I've just. You know, I just I, I would be able to talk to people, have conversations. I never thought I was a writer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I just felt that my heart, um, when I read that letter, it kind of just made me feel all fluttered inside and kind of said it was a spark that ignited something in me that I knew was true. Right. So I knew that letter that my uncle wrote to my father. It kind of it was an inspiration to say, hey, listen, I feel this same way in this industry, you know, not 100 percent saying I felt this way about how America treated me, which that is a whole nother story. But in this industry of hospitality, I felt that letter permeate. So um, it was me just taking my heart and, you know, grabbing a pen and started writing. Um, I'm not classically trained by any stretch of imagination. I need spell check. I need editors. I need all those good things. But I think uh, when I wrote a letter to my fellow black chef, it strictly came from my heart. It strictly came from my knowledge of the industry. And it strictly came from my inspiration of my uncle uh, that wrote that letter to uh, my, my nephew by James Baldwin in 1962. You know, I like to think that if James Baldwin were around today, he would have been a chef and a writer um, and an activist and an advocate. You know, you use the phrase classically trained. 
both in writing and when you describe yourself as a as a chef. And I would love to dive into what that word mean, what that phrase really means. Perhaps by talking about your own circuitous journey to to get into the kitchen. At seventeen, you found yourself in the navy. Yeah, and and so when I use the word, and most chefs use that word, classically trained, um, because they went to culinary school, and classically trained means trained by the avant-garde of chefs that come from France, um, and so the the tech the technique and uh, comes from Escoffier. And so when any chef says I'm classically trained, they're saying that I'm classically trained in the French way. And um, I use that word in a way to identify with other chefs to know that I have a culinary, culinary arts degree. Um, but I'm hesitant in always using that only because I'm classically trained in an art that is an art that is identified as being premier or paramount by other French chefs. And it doesn't really tell the story of a black person or African-American saying that they're classically trained in somebody else's food. Right. And so I, I use that for technique. Um, um, but I try to, I, I want to be clear that I want to say that, you know, my true culinary profession and my first culinary instructor is my mom, who's from Charleston, South Carolina. So that's truly how I learned how to cook. Um, I just honed my skills at, uh, uh, you know, at an older age when I, you know, went to culinary school. But yeah, for, at, at the age of 17, I, I left, um, graduated from high school. And what kind of like piqued my interest in food is that I was in the Navy. And, you know, once I had the opportunity to go into the Navy, I got to travel all over this world. And so why most people sometimes in the Navy go to the bars and get drunk, I was and my friends were going to restaurants. And we traveled from France, Portugal, Israel, uh, Sweden. Um, the list goes on and on. Abu Dhabi, uh, Dubai. And our thing was to go experience the culture of somebody else's culture, taste their food and sit down and break bread. And that that's what really sparked my interest into food and international food. And then it just kind of permeated and went deeper in my soul. And that that opportunity I had, to, I used my GI Bill from the Navy and I was able to uh, get a degree and um, in, in use it to pay for my college. And so that's that story of how it all started. In some ways, classical training might also mean for, for a black chef can might also mean unlearning certain kinds of techniques and skills and key dishes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what happens with that is that, you know, I always use this term sometimes going into the hospitality industry is that sometimes you have to assimilate yourself and, 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 and wipe away your culture a little bit to fit into a culture of in hospitality that doesn't have your food as the focus. So if I go to a restaurant and it's, um, say, a French French cuisine, you know, I have to assimilate to what French cooking is. Or if it's Italian, I have to assimilate to these different things. And even if it's in America where you're cooking modern American food, they might have dabbles of food that is Southern influence or African influence that comes from your culture. 
So sometimes as a chef, chefs, we have to assimilate into the confines of what the parameters of the food is the focused and the, the cuisine of the restaurant. And so you're right. You do have to say, uh, I have to unlearn what I've learned before from the upbringings of, of my mother and, and assimilate to a different culture of cooking. Um, techniques may stay the same a little bit. Sometimes they do change. Um, sometimes the way that my mom cooks, she doesn't use a recipe. There is no measurements. It's her hands and her fingers and her, her sight, the way she smells something. And those she, she relies on all her instincts to be able to create some fabulous dishes that today I still probably can't create as good as she does. So you're right about that. And there's some real similarities between a classical kitchen, the brigade system, right? And of course, the army. So yes. it's, it's hard to look at the person in the sitting in the front of the, the cooking classroom and later when you're a line chef or sous chef or whatever, to be able to say, no, I'm just not doing this dish or there's, there's political problems with this dish. When is the point that you get to be able to say, I'm going to plan a meal, write a recipe or cook a dish without a recipe in a different kind of way? Well, you know, fortunately for me, um, I'm at the top of my game so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> but um, so it's, it's for me, it's easy to do that for a lot of chefs. It's not because they're under, they're in a brigade and they could be a commie in the brigade. They can be a sous chef in the brigade. They can be chef de cuisine in the brigade. They're not the chef. So they have to follow a certain direction. But what I would say is that when you get to the point to figure out who you are and what your food is, and, you know, and put your passion on a plate because all chefs, I feel, want to cook like their grandmother, but they want a plate like an artist. And so when you're able to do that, then you know it's time for you to create your own way of thinking, your own way of cooking. And at that point, people will follow that, you know. And for me, that's exactly what I did. I learn from a lot of good chefs. I learned from a lot of bad chefs, but I found my voice. Um, I found uh, what works for me as being a true culinarian and being true to my heritage, my upbringing, and focused on that itself. And I focused on not trying to be like another chef or cooking other people's food. I just focused on what I like to eat and how I wanted to express myself as an artist. And uh, you know, simply that's that's how it happened. You know, I'm hearing words like passion and artistry and culinary. And in your letter, you describe cooking as, as your true love. But at the same time, you also wonder if cooking loves black chefs back. Can a chef, black, Latinx, white, uh, Tamil, can they cook without thinking about the legacies of privilege, slavery, empire? I, I'll be honest with you, Dan, I don't know if you can truly separate that. And, and I don't want that to be separated in a sense where I want the Latinx, I want the African-American to understand where their culture comes from, how their culture was used, manipulated, 
and how the culture was used and manipulated and they did not benefit from it. So it's a sense of what I call of reclaiming what was truly yours. I feel in my heart that American culinary uh, was founded by African slaves that came to America that I, I feel that hospitality was built on the backs of Blacks. I feel that all the cultures of cuisine started from a place that did not originate here, except for the Indian American, uh, Native American cuisine. So I don't want that. I, I, I want them to know their legacy. I want to know their, their heritage. And I want them to show up understanding what that means. And so when they go into places that don't identify and they're not there's, there may not be equity or inclusion, and they may not see an African-American chef, or they may not see a Native American chef, and they may not see a Latinx chef, but they still stand on the shoulders of the people that came before them, and they allow their cuisine, their techniques, their style to shine. And I think that's very important as they show up as their authentic them, whoever they are, um, because we know in America that it, it's it's... It's inclusion, it's diversity that makes America great. So why shouldn't it be in the hospitality industry? So why shouldn't we stand up and show out? So um, I think that's imperative that um, that that happens in, 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 in any chef going forward in, in the industry to make sure they're present and they stand up and they, they embrace and they love and they push their heritage forward. You know, there's a there's an entangling here of hospitality and and servitude, and so much of what of of how people in the past to today reconcile themselves, I think, to servitude is by thinking of it as as hospitality, right? Right, and 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 and, th and the thing about it is that. I think there's a distinction between servitude and hospitality. Um, I think when you think about using the word servitude, when it comes to, let's say back in slavery, 400 plus years ago, um, it's a, it's a bad, uh, well, say I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's a word to use with almost saying, uh, and, 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 and lockstep with, servitude is with slavery, right? And then hospitality is something that I feel that, you know, I think all African-Americans have that in them. I think it's, 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 it's something that you have to use to be able to create levels of interacting with other people and breaking bread and having somebody come into your house. And but I think there's a big distinction between the two because of how slavery hit. And then that fact is saying, hey, listen, servitude is different from hospitality because it's one was forced and one is a choice. Um, so I think hospitality is a choice. Servitude is, to me, just personally something that was forced to do. Um, and, and that's just how I think about those two words and that in that language and, and trying to make sense of it. You think there's a difference between hospitality and breaking bread? Well, and and I don't think there's a really difference between those two because I think when you when you think about breaking bread with somebody, I think you're inviting in, inviting them into your space. Um, I think you're inviting them um, into a place that you feel comfortable with. 
And then with that comes the hospitality part of it in which you make them feel comfortable being in a space. Um, So I I just feel that those two words may may be in in lockstep a little bit more than with servitude. You know, your great uncle wrote in his letter, he wrote, and this is one of the lines that many of us would, would know and all of us should know. Baldwin writes, this innocent country set you down in a ghetto in which, in fact, it intended you should perish. And to me, this seemed very much on your mind when you thought about how cooking for others happens in America. Should we be talking about this so-called innocent industry? Yeah, um, uh, uh, innocent industry. Um, I'm not sure it's it's so innocent. this industry of hospitality, like I said before, was built on the backs of blacks for free. So hospitality is something that African-Americans always had to do when they came to this country. And they did it in a way that it was more of servitude than hospitality. It was the way that you were kept alive. And so I think that now that this the change in the hospitality industry it still has some of the remnants of 400 years of slavery because we still even though we i believe that we built this hospitality culture we built the cuisine of america we still don't have that seat at the table we hold 18% of african americans are in the hospitality industry and only 1% have, are in the leadership position So that says to me that we have a long way to go. We were forced into this industry, but it was an industry that we took hold of, we love, we have passion for, but it wasn't intended for us to rise to the top. And so those parallels of what my uncle talked about, they sat us down in this ghetto is exactly in the writings that I'm talking about, that this industry wasn't here for us to strive. It was just the means for us to stay alive. But now we have to be able to strive in an industry that was built by us, but not for us. So do you think there's a kind of psychological wage for the white chef who finds finds the ability not to think about that legacy and who can simply start thinking about about their grandmothers, about artistry, about plating. Yeah, I think there's, <laughs> I think there's a lot to say about that sort of privilege, right? The whiteness of modern American cuisine. Yeah, there's a privilege in that, bec- but but there's there's a problem with that too because when you truly soul search about who you are, if you're in a, if you're a white chef. You really have to figure out what are you assimilating to? Because we have to understand whiteness was was created in America. Whiteness is not in Europe. Whiteness is not in France. Those things, you're a Frenchman, you're Italian, you're Irishman. So when my generation has to figure out that's a white chef, who they truly, truly, truly are, where do they reach back to? What legacy do they go back to? Do they go back to their roots of Europe? Did it go back to their roots? Like I go back to my roots of Africa. So you have to really figure out where they're, they're now. With that, 
they have the privilege not to have to think about that. And they can just cook what they assimilated to cook American food. And that's a privilege that you have in a space where you look at, hey, listen, maybe I don't have to think about my heritage. Maybe I can just cook American food the way it is. But maybe because I'm white, I don't have to look like my food. Right. And so I have a they would have a blank slate to cook whatever they want. Me, myself, when you look at me, I'm an African-American with locks. You would think, oh, he's going to cook either soul food or he's going to cook Jamaican food. My 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 look identifies some ways, which I hate that that's the style of food I can cook. But the privilege of a white person that they can cook whatever they want. And that could be the normal sense. They can cook Asian food. They can put Latinx food. They can cook soul food. They can cook Irish food. They can put, and it seems normal. It doesn't seem normal for me. I th- I feel that that's a se- sense sense of privilege um, because I ran into that problem when I did food, food Network Star. They wanted me to cook soul food, and I didn't. And I didn't have that privilege not to be able to cook whatever I wanted. And so, that's a problem for a lot of chefs of color that they don't have that privilege. They, they're relegated to cooking one style of food and the style of food of what they look like. And if they, they try to cook any other style of food, it's like, oh, that's this just doesn't seem right. And that becomes an economic inequality too. I mean, uh, uh, the white chef who's at the top of his game can charge whatever he wants, right? Yeah, I mean, he can charge whatever he wants, but and, and, and not only he can charge whatever he wants, it seems normal for a white chef to cook any food. But does it seem normal for an African-American chef to cook Asian food? No. But you see a lot of white chefs that cook Asian food. And it's like, okay, they went over to Asia. They learned the culture. And, you know, they stayed over there for two years. And they came back. And now they're cooking Asian food in America. But... It's, it's that sense of you're able to do whatever you want. And it'd be great if black chefs could do the same thing. But what most black chefs feel is that, listen, I got to cook the food in which people will identify better with me to cook. And if I want to be profitable in this industry, I'm going to stick. I'm going to stay in this lane. And if I go outside of that lane, I won't be profitable. Because it looks like I'm trying, I'm doing a stretch. I'm doing something that's not normal. Um, But like I'm saying, white chefs have that privilege to be able to cook whatever genre of food they want and have a sort of backstory behind it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. And that's good. Everybody has that. If everybody has that ability to do that. But something is wrong with that when the black chef doesn't have that ability to do that and doesn't have that space to be able to create what they feel they want to cook. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Chef Mitchell in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Daniel Bender talking with Chef Malcolm Mitchell. Chef, you wrote that you wrestled with writing this letter. And you described the very real perils of what would happen if you, as you write, stirred up the pot of inequities that exist in the hospitality industry. Is there a particular moment that you decided that you wanted to write the letter or perhaps had to, had to write the letter? Yeah, I mean, Dan, it was, it was a situation where I felt that my moral currency was much more than me losing customers or a, a space where some of my sponsors, because I've done a lot of things, you know, all over the country with different food sponsors and um, different sponsors that kind of, you know, helped me in, you know, do, during my culinary career. So it was one of those things where I, I just felt that this letter needed to be written. And um, I wrote it in a place where trying to help. And and and, and sometimes I, I just felt with what what is my legacy is like if, if I am I so self-absorbed with myself am I so self-absorbed with all the accomplishments that I've done and if I am, can only help myself and I have can cannot help others I can I'm not helping anything so it was very important for me to write this letter regardless of what any backlash that I thought may have come from this letter um you know this is a very open letter um, it touches on a lot of different industries and, you know, some people may felt uncomfortable about me writing this letter and it may make them feel uncomfortable, but it was something that I had to do. Um, I had to shine a light on it and it was, the letter was for the betterment of elevating black chefs. And that was the sole purpose of the letter, uh, was to comfort and help my fellow black chefs. And how has it been received? Hey, I'm on this radio show, <laughs> Gastronomica. People want to hear this story. Um, it's been received very well. It's been received by the people who I w- it was intended for, the fellow Black chefs, right? And so when I hear them saying, yo, chef, I appreciate that. It motivated me. We needed that. We wanted, I, I wanted to find out that it wasn't just me going through what I'm going through. So... Those, that's how it was received to me in the best possible way of to the fellow black chef. But, you know, 
some people run away from this. I mean, I, I mentioned in here about culinary schools and I had an opportunity to want to reach out to the culinary school that I went to. And, and I sent them this letter and my next article was coming out that I was going to write was about culinary schools. And it wasn't received well by them because it, it does, it's adversarial till their bottom line, which their bottom line is profit. Um, and I tell, I say it all the time, organizations, companies, educational systems, every, everybody has to have a double bottom line, one of profit and purpose, and they need to be in line together. And so, you know, hospitality industry received it well. Uh, I've been doing some equity and diversity podcasts with uh, um, U.S. Foods, who just me ha- had me on a podcast the other day. And so people understand that if you are not equitable in the things that you do today's time with so many things going on uh, with social unrest um, in America, that you that will affect your bottom line if you don't have any purpose and you're not in line with the community, not only in the workplace, um, but in the marketplace, it's going to be a problem. So it's, it's, it's got mixed reviews, but hey, I'm here for one reason only, and that's to advocate for the African-American chef that has been marginalized for 400 plus years. I'm really interested in what you're saying there about, about cooking schools. And I'm wondering, what is, uh, what's the reckoning that needs to come to the curriculum at cooking schools? How does, where does anti-racism, social justice, decolonizing, where's racism in today's cooking school curriculums? Well, you, the thing of it, um, I, I look at it in a different way. I look at it, it's not racism. It's a fact that they are using African-Americans through workforce development, through grants, through all these different educational programs and hoarding Black chefs through a system and giving them no education. So what happens with that is that you bring all these black chefs through, you give them a degree, a degree that is not written on the, the paper that it's written on is more expensive than the degree that they went through. And then you send them out into an industry that I hold dear to my heart, I love, and you ha- send them out there to compete with a, a chef like me. They don't have a chance. They don't have a chance. And now how demoralizing is that, that you send a black chef out into a career and you tell them that they have a degree in this industry and they're going to strive? No. I mean, that is so demoralizing when they come out and they don't even know how to boil water. So I don't know if you call that. That's not racism. That's just saying, hey, listen, the the greed is more important. The profit is more important than the purpose. And so that's what I have been seeing a lot of culinary schools doing. Now, I'm not painting all culinary schools with that broad brush, but the majority of the culinary schools are getting these grants to educate. And then that helps, right? Social justice. All right. We want to, we want to, we want to close the gap. We want to close the educational gap. We want to close the poverty gap. We want to close the wealth gap. Okay. Let's put them into this. Let's get, you know, African-Americans that are coming from these different um, adverse communities. Let's get them educated. 
but the education system is not educating them. You know what I mean? So, And they're still coming out classically trained, so to speak. They're coming out classically trained, but in a way where they're pushed through the system. Right. And, and, and we have to have, and like, granted, we have to have self agency uh, over ourselves, but shouldn't we hold the educational system, the college have self agency over themselves to educate these students in a proper way and not just money grab. So that's the problem that I have with the education. Some of the educational systems and culinary schools at this point, it's like, they're just money grabbing. They're not, they're not really there to educate the student to get them in a place where they can strive in, in, this, in this hospitality industry. And can a, a student, an African-American student who's going to a cooking school, can they, do they find themselves in the curriculum or do they find a big gap between their own history and the history that we've, we've been talking about, about servitude and hospitality, and wonder where they are in a curriculum that's still perhaps about a school fee? Yeah, it's almost like CRT in a sense, right? And it's almost like, you know, you try to figure out um, where do you belong? Now, to be clear, you know, my culinary book that I, it was uh, Susan Szymanski wrote this, the culinary book. Now, there's additions all the time, right? There, There's a, a updates and additions to, to the book. And Obviously, they'll have, you know, the melting pot of America and all the different types of cuisine. So you, you you will see some, you know, soul food in there. You'll see some indigenous food as well. Um, so you might see glimpses of your food and, and your people. But uh, all in all, you're going to see techniques of Escoffier. You're going to see Nouvelle cuisine and you're going to see cuisine of French. And so... Which is it's 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 not to say it's not okay. It's okay to learn techniques, and if there is a certain genre of food that is the creators and the parents of this style of technique, then we should learn that technique if it's if it's the betterment of for technique. But there should be some type of influence that you identify with personally in a culinary book. And when you come out and when you learn, and so you have to take some of what you learned at home and combine what you've learned in culinary school and, and create who you are, you know, create your style of cuisine and what you're comfortable in cooking. And maybe this is just me, the historian reading your, your letter, but part of what I think, part of my takeaway from reading your letter, as you evoked a long history of black chefs in America, was an insistent that it's not that black chefs when they were working in in different households and different restaurants and in the back of different kinds of houses it's not that they were using technique they were also shaping american cooking technique right absolutely and 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 to say that um that they were shaping that where do we see them in the culinary books of the day Right. So Posey and, and, and Lee Chase, you know, is the queen of Creole cooking. She won a James Beard Award, right, of a Lifetime Achievement Award. Where is she? You know, what I mean, so, you know, if I if I would have known I, I learned about these uh, of these people afterwards. Right. And um, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household that taught us about African-American history and 
and and and taught us about um, being strong and understanding their culture, our culture. But there's a lot of young African Americans out there that need to be shown something that looks like them that is great, so they can in- inspire to be great. And so when we have these people like uh, you know Posey and Hercules, and, and you know, and you have these people that have shaped American history as far as culinary senses wise, and not only because it was a sense of servitude, but it was technique, it was style, it was charisma. Um, these are the people that we need to celebrate in culinary schools. And these are the people that we need to celebrate in the hospitality industry to keep, keep the needle pushing it forward. And in a powerful statement, you write in your letter, are we now the modern day slave when our contributions to this industry are invisible and the fruits of our ancestors' labors are denied to us? Those that find this question extreme have not walked a day in my clogs. And that quote was at the forefront when you wrote the letter, but can you use it to reflect on the turmoil in the food industry today amidst supply chains, dangers, COVID, you name it? Yeah, I mean, this um, this industry now is, is going through a turmoil. And I, I feel... I feel that this turmoil that it's going through is more of a cleansing. I think it's a cultural cleansing in the hospitality industry because Dan, you would, if you will agree with me or not, that there's a lot of people that have been in this industry that have not been in this industry for the love of hospitality, the love of culinary arts and the passion. They've been in here for the profit. It's just a means to an end. There's act, actors, actresses, all the, all these different folks that are in this industry because they're waiting for their next big shot, right? And right now, the turmoil is going on is that all of them have left the industry. Now we are actually skimming the fat, and now we're dealing with the people that really, really want to strive and really hold this industry. Um, they hold it dear to their heart. And they want to see that this industry uh, progresses in a way, even though in the midst of COVID, um, we can still keep this industry alive. Um, and so for me, um, it's, a, it's a resurrection um, of the industry, what we're going through now. And I think it's an opportunity now that there's a great opportunity for a lot of chefs of color to rise up. Um, not because, um, that there's talent leaving, but I think it's the people that were in here just to be in here that was just taking up space. And now we're creating more space for people that have the real talent to be able, uh, to make a push. Is there an, a a way for the, the great resignation, one might call it, you know, those mass numbers of hospitality and food workers who've just not returned to the kitchens? To, to to think about that great resignation as a as a form of resistance, right? As a as a demand, a collective demand for for something different, for something where you know your your phrase here, right? You talked about stirring up the pot of inequities. Is the great resignation a way of emptying emptying that pot, filling it up with something better? I'm just pushing your metaphor there. Yeah, I I, I think that yeah, I'm 
I'm stirring up the pot because, you know, I'm talking truth to power, right? And I'm unapologetic about what I say about this industry because I can talk about this industry because I gave sweat and tears to this industry. So I think I am, um, I'm authentic in what I speak. And when I stir up the pots of inequity, it makes sense for me because I want to make change. Now, the resignation of a lot of people in this industry that have, that have left the industry, what are they, they resigned? Are they helping because they left? No, you stay and you fight, right? You don't quit. You stay and you fight. If you want change, you fight for what you believe in. So the resignation to me should be a, a, a resurrection for a, the new people, the new people that really want to fight for this industry. And I think if you leave the industry, you left a lot on the table. And, and this industry now, um, to be quite honest, I've been in for 25 plus years that this industry is paying the most that it's ever paid in, in, in my 25 years. And we can go back and not, I'm just talking about the, the dishwasher to the sous chef, to the chef de cuisine, to, um, you know, people in the boardroom. I mean, this industry is paying top dollar now. So that push to get those top dollars did come from one that there were people who left the industry. So now you have to pay more because you don't have a pool to pick from, but it was people saying we want uh, fair wages, right? We want livable wages. You know, we want better conditions in the hospitality industry. I mean, it was an industry that was built on, like I said, slavery. So who really cared about the people who were slaves? They didn't care about them. So, like I say, that remnants of slavery and hospitality is is something that is that's here today. But now we got to look for a better way. Right. So I don't want to resign from this industry. I love this industry. I'm going to fight for the industry. I'm going to fight for the people in this industry and I'm going to push the needle. And that's that's my ultimate goal. And, and somewhat as a final question here, is that exactly what you mean by an Afrofuturistic undertaking? Yeah, when you when when most people understand what Afrofuturistic means, it's reimagining something different. It's the slave that reimagine that imagines freedom, right? It's it's almost it's it's watching the movie Black Panther and seeing that that's an Afrocentric situation. Is that did we think that the black man would have a place called? Wakanda. Did we imagine that? You would never imagine that, right? And so Afrocentric is trying to figure out, reimagining what the industry would look like if we never had slavery, if we never thought that one person was superior to another person, right? And so what, that's what we have to imagine, a better place, and, and, and when I use that term, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about Wakanda. I'm thinking about a place where the, the, the black person can strive and just not stay alive. Like, that's all we've been fighting for. We've been fighting for just being alive. But where can we be in a place and reimagine a place that we can strive and be profitable and we can live in a space that's recreated for all people. And we are all people. We're part of all people. We're part of America. 
You know, we're in that. You know, we we help shaped this place. Now we want to be a part of this place, and we want to be all inclusive. And I would love to to eat in and be part of that restaurant. I think that's a great place to stop. We could talk for hours more. Thank you, uh, Chef Malcolm Mitchell, for joining us. And listeners, again, can find a link to his letter in our show notes. And soon, hopefully, we'll be able to give an extended version of this interview in the pages of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Join us for the next few weeks as members of the Editorial Collective talk to authors from the current issue of Gastronomica, issue 21.4. For more information about Gastronomica and for more reading, visit gastronomica.org.